So we are in our series in Exodus, and we are reading today Exodus 19 through to near the end of 20. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourself have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession." Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal should be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor the sons or daughters, nor your male or female servants, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Thank you, Grace. Well, please um, do have your Bibles open on Exodus chapter 19. There's a heck of a lot in that passage we read out. Um, Some preachers have handled that passage over 13 or so sermons. Um, So, what we're going to do today is uh, focus on two themes of God's revelation and our identity. Uh, We're not going to look at the Ten Commandments in detail, partly because we've got a fantastic series which is on our website. Uh, Our former senior pastor, Mike Tyndall, did a, a great series going through all the Ten Commandments So it's not that we don't think they're important, but we wanted to be able to get the sweep of Exodus as well. So we're um, aiming to get some of the high points in this book. But today we're going to focus on that preparation in, in chapter 19 and what it means to fear God. Now, Oprah Winfrey has more than one. So does Davina McCall. Jordan Peterson's sold over five million And even Arnold Schwarzenegger, will you believe, has a new one. Well, what am I on about? Self-help books. Uh, Arnie was being interviewed by one of our former church members earlier this week for the BBC, and it's a funny clip that Edam shared on our WhatsApp group. Well, they've all written their own instruction manuals for how to live a fuller, healthier life. Whether it's weaning yourself off sugar, or applying Peterson's tough love and taking responsibility, or Arnie's no-nonsense seven rules for life, which are guided by this one lesson his father hammered into him above all, be useful. Well, there's, there's all this advice and wisdom out there. 
Because life is tough. Life is confusing. It's inevitable that we want the clarity. We want help along the way. And especially when it comes from successful people, whether we take their advice or not, we all have some sort of framework, some code, some guidelines, whether we're religious or not, that shape the way we live. And for each person, how we live is a way of saying, this is who I am. This is where I stand and what I stand for. And this is who I belong to. This is my purpose. And in Exodus 19 and 20, this is a climactic part of God's rescue of Israel because they encounter God at Mount Sinai. They find out who they are. They hear what their purpose is. And likewise, that's true for us today. In receiving God's truth, we not only know who God is, but we find out who we are. And so I've got two points. The first one is just simply this. We've got to look at our foundation. Uh, if I can get the clicker to work, it's, I thought it was on and working. Not, can you flick it on, Ali? Thank you. Foundation. Know who you are. Know who you are. So we're three months out of Egypt, where we pick up here in uh, chapter 19, verse 1. This extraordinary caravan of former slaves, young and old, women and men, with their cattle, their livestock, their earthly possessions, are now in the desert of Sinai at the foot of a mountain for another life-changing event. And at this point, the Lord is specifically fulfilling a promise he gave to Abraham to make him a father of a nation that will be a blessing to all nations in Genesis 12 and Genesis 17. That promise is starting to be fleshed out. He's also fulfilling his promise to Moses, given at the burning bush, before the rescue from Egypt, back in Exodus 3, verse 12, where we read, And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. He's brought them, he's brought them back to where it started. For Moses, And so at the foot of a mountain in the, the Sinai Peninsula, the, the Israelites have pitched their tents and they will remain there for almost a year. First to receive God's law, then to set up and build the tabernacle. And in terms of Bible books, that's 59 chapters. It's from Exodus 19 right through Leviticus and on to Numbers chapter 10 verse 11. That's all set at the foot of Sinai. And as meetings go, coming face-to-face -face with your creator is probably right at the top of the list, isn't it? I don't know who else you'd have there as celebrities, whether it's Taylor Swift or some awesome footballer or something like that. But your creator, face-to-face. -face. If you were invited to visit King Charles, you'd make sure you had the right outfit on. Everything was in the correct place preparations would need to happen, wouldn't they, weeks, months beforehand. Preparations needed to be made so that Moses and his people were ready. Moses had to go up. He was representing the people to God and God to the people. You probably got that rhythm as it was being read out in chapter 19 of him going up, coming down, going up, coming down. Three treks are happening in, in chapter 19. And why? Because... God is high and exalted. The scripture says that his righteousness is like the mighty mountain 
Psalm 36. A mountain is a fitting place to meet with God for its scale, its enormity. But first, God gives Moses these words about identity for his people. It's a breathtaking description of how he sees his people. Some scholars say these verses are the heart of the book of Exodus. Look at verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You can hear the emphasis, can't you? You yourselves. People, you're redeemed. You were there with your own eyes. You saw me at work. The sea divided. Remember. On eagles' wings. Not literally. This wasn't a moment from Lord of the Rings, you know, where they get rescued that way. But descriptively, here here is the description of God's care. An eagle is a fierce bird of prey. God's fierce judgment is seen against Egypt. He brings Israel out, defeating Pharaoh. An eagle is also a symbol throughout the scriptures of protection. God is the one who lifts up Israel, caring for them in the wilderness, and draws Israel close to worship him. As the scholar Phil Reichen put, the Exodus was not just about getting Israel out of Egypt. It was about getting Israel close to God. You see, salvation is never an end point. There's always something greater, and that greater is God himself and our fellowship with him. This is a high point here. Verse 5. Eyes down, let's look at this. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now, Israel's requirement to be faithful to God's covenant, to this promise that he's given, is not understood to mean that Israel worked for their salvation. The entire scene at Mount Sinai and the laws to be given flow out of all that God has done for them already. Verse 4, they're rescued. The Israelites are not to keep the law of God to save themselves. The law is the next stage in developing, in deepening their covenant relationship. To obey the law shows that they trust God's promises. Now they are redeemed. They are obligated to act in a manner worthy of that redemption. And you know, this is true of all believers. Old covenant to new. Believers saved by Christ. It's the same for us. Our redemption is worked out in the way we live. Listen to how Paul put it in Ephesians 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Again, to his letter to the Thessalonian Christians in chapter 111, he writes, We constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power... He may bring to fruition every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. This is working out that salvation 
not saving ourselves, but showing the redemption, the new identity we have as God's people. And what does God promise? He promises to make them, it, it, it is a glorious promise here, his treasured possession. I don't know how many of you uh, felt your heartstrings tug if you watched uh, the Toy Story trilogy and Toy Story 3. There were a lot of men who were upset by it. Those attachments to their toys, to Woody, that's in that film as Andy gives his box of toys to another child to enjoy. Reminded them of childhood toys, of affections, of, of these wonderful things that brought joy. How much more does God cherish us? We're not toys to play with. We're his creatures, his people, his beloved. How much more does God cherish us? The Hebrew word there for treasured possession indicates royal property. It's the same word used in 1 Chronicles 29 for the gift that King David gave towards building the temple. We're God's treasure, royal jewels. And the Lord is devoted to his people from every nation purchased by the blood of his son. And not just treasured, but treasured with a special purpose. Did you see that? You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Israel is meant to represent God to the nations and to represent the nations to God. Later, God makes the Levite tribe... Um, serve as priests within the community they were to offer sacrifices to lead worship to look after the tabernacle but the whole nation everyone were also called to serve God in all of life they were to be priests mediators for the nations around them showing them the way of salvation calling people to repent and believe in the Lord it's what we see of Someone like Ruth, the Moabite, in the period of the judges, who comes into Israel because she's married into that family and actually becomes part of the saving plan of this people because through her family line comes King David and ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what we see with Daniel in Babylon being a light there calling rulers to repentance to acknowledge the Lord God who gives power and takes it away. Now Jesus gave, has given his church that same priestly task that God gave to Israel. So the apostle Peter took Exodus 19 and applied it like this to us. Um, Ali, if you could flick the slide on please, the text should come up. Peter writes, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Can you see their identity and purpose? Straight from Exodus 19. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, this isn't your home. You're living here as resident aliens. It counts, but it's not the eternal. So what do you do? You abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, 
they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Live in such a way that people are drawn to worship the Lord. You see, we are precious priests with a mission in this world. We're to serve the world by living in step with God's will. We take our obedience to his command seriously. We won't compromise things like honesty in a world of spin and sound bites and cancelling people. We continue to forgive others and work for reconciliation, even when with people we find difficult, because the Lord has forgiven and called us first. We'll be generous with our time and resources to care for those in need, even those who can't pay us back. We won't join in the gossip or smutty humor, even doing this knowing that people will think, oh, we're just being judgmental or just boring. We'll prayerfully look to share Jesus' good news, whether that's simply saying how he loves us and how he saved us, or giving Christian literature away, or inviting people to read a bit of a gospel with us, bringing them to church, perhaps to encounter something of the community and the message here. Now, I also appreciate there are many times when we don't feel very precious. I wonder how you score yourself on feeling like a treasured possession this morning. You might be feeling that way right now. We struggle to make it from one day to the next. We're weighed down by the stress and pressure of work. We spend all our time at home with small children and feel isolated. We never quite get the grades or results we want in our studies. The new job we're looking for seems just out of reach. We get discouraged by conflicts and difficulties in our family life. We struggle with illness and loneliness. Even when we seem to have it all together and everything's going well, there are still times when that feels empty, unsatisfactory. Whatever our struggles, we have been drawn close to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore, every Christian is precious to God, loved with a unique and everlasting love. Do we deserve this? No. No, we don't. We've sung about it already this morning. No, but God values us as daughters and sons with the infinitely precious blood of his very own son. We are his treasured possession. So church, do you dare to believe that and accept that today? Accept this God-given identity today. Do you dare? Will you take God at his word and say, if this is ultimately true through your son, I want that. If you're far from God, if this sounds utterly alien to you this morning, well, welcome. Thank you for just taking the time to be here. That's an immense thing, an immense step. We're blessed to have you here. But can I plead with you, don't stop now. Go further. Take the God of the Bible here at his word. Look further. Ask him to reveal what it means to actually know you 
are a treasured possession through his son, Jesus Christ. You've got to get the foundation right before any worship starts. And so now, we go deeper into Revelation. The second point, Revelation, God speaks, we listen. It's so important, again, that we get our identity right, because depending on where we stand with God, what God shows of himself will either terrify us and we won't want anything to do with him or it'll lead us to worship it'll lead us to humble adoration so Moses comes down to deliver God's word to the elders and the gathered community there in verses seven to eight there's a heartfelt response from the people we'll do everything the Lord has said it's like yeah 100 percent full on let's do this and they really meant it but with us will fail. It, it's impossible to do this perfectly. And what flows is the Lord's gracious response to meet with them so that they will trust Moses as the divinely appointed mediator of God's word, verse 9. He hears their response. He's going to take them further. He's going to give them what they need to keep listening, to keep being taught, to keep obeying. And they have two days to prepare, to consecrate and wash clothes, to abstain from sex, not because sex is bad or God thinks it's yucky, but to give in, in a physical way their mind and their heart to the first love, to the Lord. It's almost a way of fasting, of preparation. But also, as we see in Leviticus, again, not because sex is dirty, but in terms of ceremonially coming before the Lord, you've got to be clean. And there's fluids and stuff like this, which stop you, if you've had sex, from going into the tabernacle and worshipping. You've got to wait a bit. It's just the way it is. Ceremonially clean. People prepared. In other words, they've put, they're, they're serious about this. We're pitching up ready. God has already brought his people close. His presence was mediated through the angel of the Lord. We've read about that in the, the chapters previously, through the, the rescue, the, the pillar of smoke, the pillar of fire. His presence has always been there. But this next revelation would take them deeper. It's building on it. Now, I've got a slide on the PowerPoint, Ali, that shows... Um, the Grand Canyon. This is the Grand Canyon from space in Arizona. And, and from that, it just looks like a bit of a winding stream at points. But I tell you, if you're in a canoe on that river, it'll feel very different. Uh, they say that it's a, a, a mile deep, a mile deep, and in places an 18-mile width between the canyon, in the canyon. That's a wide crack in the earth, isn't it? But from space, woo, titchy. And in a similar way, the closer Israel came to the Lord, the more clearly they saw his greatness, the more clearly this vast distance between them and God. 
So he descends onto the mountain, we're told, uh, verse 9. I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud. And at the same time, God is revealing but concealing himself. And, and the same thing goes on at the transfiguration for Jesus. Peter, James, and John see Jesus enveloped in a bright cloud, we're told in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17, verse 5. The cloud is surrounding Jesus, shows his divine glory, but it hides the full impact and intensity of that. We wouldn't be able to bear it. And so with the limits around the mountain, uh, in verse 12, chapter 19, back in Exodus, all of these things, the cloud, the smoke, the limits, the safety barriers, are safety barriers to protect God's people, his treasured people. The holy perfection of the Lord cannot abide with sinners. Even wearing washed clothes that have been extra sprayed with vanish stain remover is not enough. His holiness is consuming. And we folks, we're not fireproof. And there's a warning right here for Christians. Right here. Not to be presumptuous in our worship. Don't just enter church thoughtlessly. Yes, we're saved by Jesus' blood. We, we get to call God Father. We, we're not bound by codes in the same way of the old covenant style of worship. No, that's been fulfilled. And yet, don't enter our times together with the Lord thoughtlessly. As if meeting with other Christians is an absolute chore. Be prepared. Be prayerful. Be expectant that the Lord's going to do stuff through the people around you, through his word. That you will encounter him. You will be changed. We're in the presence of a holy and transcendent God who abides with his people in us. Therefore, as, as the writer to the Hebrew states, worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. New Covenant believers, worship him with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And when that third day arrives in verse 16, it is seismic, isn't it? When was the last time you were blown away by a sheer spectacle of wonder, of magnificence, of something that you'd seen and heard? For me, it's every morning when I wake up and look at my wonderful wife. I'll get told off for that later. But no, on another level... One of those things that just blew me away was back in 1996, the fireworks at the Festival of the Sea in Bristol. And it was set near the Clifton Suspension Bridge. And I tell you, it was electrifying. The noise was immense. The colours were blinding. I was just like this for half an hour, looking up. I couldn't take my eyes away. It felt like the sky was falling on you. It was that powerful. But I knew, whilst it was a world-class demonstration display, it would end. I wasn't making my mater, maker. I wasn't meeting God. But at Sinai, that is happening. And everyone trembled. Thunder, lightning, very, very thick cloud. <laughs> Billowing smoke. The ground shaking. A trumpet that is just getting louder and louder and louder, like an alarm. When's it going to stop? How does it stop? Not in a massive explosion. What does the text tell us, verse 19? Moses spoke. Wow. 
And God answered. Right there in that moment. That's awe and intimacy, isn't it? Sheer power. All comes to a halt because someone speaks to God and God answers. Again, I've just put this on the PowerPoint so we can see it clearly. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. See, here's transcendence and closeness. Here's being shrouded yet open. And what do we see first? What God has done. Then what the redeemed are to do in response. Margaret Killingray um, astutely sums up the impact and purpose of the Ten Commandments this way. This is what she says in her study guide. Far from bringing about an oppressive slavery, these commandments, and those that follow in the next chapters, restored to the Israelites everything that slavery in Egypt had destroyed. Freedom from pagan gods, freedom to work with dignity and rest, freedom to maintain proper family relationships, freedom to have law and order and justice, freedom to own houses and livestock and to honour the ownership of other people. The commandments are addressed in the singular to individuals in community Because each person has a responsibility to live by and support these rules for all to flourish. And since they have been released from slavery, God's commandments describe the lifestyle of the redeemed, not their means of redemption. So the law of God helps the rescued Israelites to live in a way that reflects his character, the character of the one who rescues The way they live shows their new identity as people who belong to God. But as Israel hear the commands, what's their reaction? Next slide, please, Ali, thanks. Verse 18. What are we told? They trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourselves and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses then says to the people, Don't be afraid. God has come to test you. Same word used there in chapter 16, verse 4, about the manner. This is a trial, a test. Why? So that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. This is fascinating, isn't it? Fear and fear together. Moses sees the difference between being afraid of God and fearing God. Those who have the fear of him won't be afraid of him. What? It's the same Hebrew word used there. It sounds odd, doesn't it? But if you think about it on an everyday level, perhaps you're afraid of dogs. You've grown up, you haven't grown up with them, so you're not used to them. The bark is loud. Sometimes when you see their teeth, that isn't very nice either. Perhaps you've had a bad experience. But with some coaching, with an obedient dog, you will see that there's a safe and good way to enjoy them. And to know a dog doesn't mean you're scared and so there's a fear that's good that we should embrace and a fear that isn't theologian michael reeves describes the bad type of being afraid of god as sinful fear it drives us away from god it's the fear of the unbeliever who hates god who fears being exposed by him it's what the deceased self-described anti-theist christopher hitchens 
honestly talks about in an interview with Fox News where he said, if there was a permanent total around the clock divine supervision and invigilation of everything you did, you would never have a waking or sleeping moment when you weren't watched and controlled and supervised by some celestial entity from the moment of your conception to the moment of your death. Well, that would be hideous. It would be like living in North Korea, he said. You see, that's a, a sinful fear that says, oh, I'll have nothing to do with you. This sinful fear flees from God because it misunderstands God. It's blind to the Lord's kindness. It sees him as a threat. Even religious people can see God that way. They end up performing all types of good works and service to appease God whilst despising him at the same time, like the older son in Luke 15 in the prodigal. However, the Holy Spirit's work is the exact opposite. He produces in us a wonder and humility that wins and draws us to God. The pastor and preacher C.H. Spurgeon put it this way, that it's a love and wonder that leans toward the Lord because of his very goodness. And it flows from a sense of the love and kindness of God. So as believers following Jesus Christ, he is the key to how we understand God's law. Jesus doesn't set it aside. The law and the prophets, they're not put in the bin. No, he takes them into a new era of fulfillment in himself, which governs our obedience. In Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, Jesus declares, all the law and the prophets hang on, love God and your neighbor. And so as disciples of Christ, hearing the Old Testament law today, we feel the moral force we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit through it, but the law is mediated through Jesus, who fulfilled it, its demands perfectly. He's done it. And as our Savior, his righteousness is counted to us by faith. And so with his Spirit living in us now, God's commands are understood as obedient expressions of love for him and for our neighbor. Commands that we take seriously, that we thoughtfully apply, we work out in our everyday lives. And therefore, this means we want to turn from sin to live lives that please the Lord. It means we tremble not in terror, but because we love him in his holiness. We tremble and marvel at his mercy. You see, the bottom line is, we're not at Sinai. Really obvious point, isn't it? We're not at Sinai. And this is how the writer to the Hebrews put it. Again, I've put this on the slide so we can see the reference here from Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. This is home. This is our trembling expectation. We tremble because the Lord speaks to us each time we read and hear scripture as his spirit applies these living words to our hearts and renews our mind to do his will. 
We tremble because the profound love of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who calls us and saves us and sanctifies us, that is, makes us fit for his purposes and kingdom. He does that to make us his own. He now lives in us and each day wants us to know him as Abba Father. That is where mountains quake and tremble. That is where we are wrapped up in his glory, mediated in Christ. This is where we say, Lord, your will be done. And the challenge is, well, we've got to figure out together, if we're serious about this, with his Holy Spirit, is, well, how do we do that? What does that look like this week, this month, this year, this decade, for as long as the Lord keeps me breathing and alive on this earth? This week coming, we're having a week of prayer. I think it's the first time we've done something like this in a sustained way, certainly in my memory since being here at the church since November 2014. I'm expectant. I'm expectant that in these times where we make time to pray for each other, for the mission that God has for Manchester and beyond, for our own needs as a church, for the stewardship season where we're saying, Lord, we need your provision as we've seen here that he will do things for us and through us. I hope you're ready to meet with him on a daily basis. Be praying that this time of prayer, setting ourselves aside to depend on him, call upon him, will be a place of powerful encounter, of seeing answers which will encourage us and fuel us to do yet more, not out of dry duty, but in marveling wonder at the grace he has already given us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that our home is your city, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, that we have come to that mountain, that we sang about at the start, that Isaiah prophesied in chapter 25 and 26 and saw that mountain as all nations flowing in, that we see in Revelation, we are there because of your son. We are there because it is your will that we have a mediator in Jesus of a new covenant written in his blood. Father, thank you. Would you change us day by day to know the profound joy and trembling of your life-changing, saving love. Amen.